0: And uh, please turn your copy of God's holy word to the Song of Songs, the Song of Solomon, chapter 1. And this is our preparatory sermon for communion, where we prepare our hearts this week to meet with our Lord. And while we will consider in the preaching of the word from verses 9 to 17, we'll go back to verse 5 in the reading of the word, that we might get the context once again. As it's been several months since we've been in the song. So uh, please turn to Song of Songs 1, verse 5. And let us hear once again the reading of God's holy word, Song of Songs, chapter 1, verse 5. I am black, but comely, O ye daughters of Jerusalem as the tents of Kedar, as the curtains of Solomon. Look not upon me, because I am black, because the sun hath looked upon me. My mother's children were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards, but mine own vineyard have I not kept. Tell me, O thou whom my soul loveth, where thou feedest, where thou makest thy flock to rest at noon? For why should I be as one that turneth aside by the flocks of thy companions?' If thou know not, O thou fairest among women, go thy way forth by the footsteps of the flock and feed thy kids beside the shepherd's tents. And this is where we pick up our sermon text. I have compared thee, O my love, to a company of horses in Pharaoh's chariots. Thy cheeks are comely with rows of jewels, thy neck with chains of gold. We will make thee borders of gold with studs of silver. While the king sitteth at his table, my spikenard sendeth forth the smell thereof. A bundle of myrrh is my well-beloved unto me. He shall lie all night betwixt my breasts. My beloved is unto me as a cluster of campfire in the vineyards of En-Jedi. Behold, thou art fair, my love. Behold, thou art fair. Thou hast dove's eyes. Behold, thou art fair, my beloved. Yea, pleasant. Also our bed is green, the beams of our house, are cedar, and our rafters of fir. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we have such beauty in the scripture here now. And the Father, the minister, um, all by himself without the spirit, is unable to draw the mind and heart to the beauty of Christ. And so, Father, we pray that this word preached would not be a word preached in the minister's own strength, but instead the minister would be enabled by the Spirit of the Lord in order to preach up Jesus. Father, we desire to see our beloved most of all in this text, that you would prepare our hearts through the preaching of the word, that we may meet the King at his table next week. And so, Father, we pray that the Spirit of the Lord would rest on all those that hear this Word, and those who have never seen the beauty of Christ may perceive him for the first time, saying, "The half of it was not told me, as we see the King's beauty. And so one thing we ask of thee in the preaching of the Word, that you would show us Jesus, he who is fairer than the children of men. And we ask this for his sake. Amen. Amen. Well, if my Bible software is to be trusted, Almost 1,300 times the word behold is used in the authorized version of the scriptures. And that's likely going to be the case for every translation. And when the Lord says behold, he intends for us to take note of something, to pay special attention to something that is vitally important for us to look at. And so in the three sermons in the communion season this uh, summer, our three sermons are going to have us behold something. Today, we hear the king say to his bride, Behold, thou art fair, my love. And as a church, we are to say to the king himself, Behold, thou art fair, my beloved. This is a beautiful interchange of longing and desire between Christ and ourselves, each desiring the other, each desiring to be with the other. To have this communication with Christ over this week uh, as you prepare for the table is vital because sometimes, and this is why in God's timing we hope to have multiple preparatory services, because sometimes we focus on self-examination to come to the table, and yes, we should, but we can often lose sight of our beloved in the process. We look at our failings, we look at our sins, and we must, and we must repent of all those things. But we neglect to look at the king's beauty, and we neglect to look at the fact that it is his work to beautify us. We neglect, as McShane exhorted us, for every look at ourselves to take ten of Christ, that he is altogether lovely. That he is infinitely majestic and he is full of grace for sinners that he loves. That it is his work to beautify us in holiness and it is his work to perfect us with graces. Oh, to look on Christ the way the, the bride does in this text, to look on him with such faith works great things in the soul. It makes him not only beautiful to us, it makes the world and sin ugly in comparison to his precious beauty, to to them that believe he is precious. And when he is precious to the believer, all other things in the world, all sin is ugly and to be despised. And and so to come to the table desiring Christ's beauty is in some ways the very best way to prepare, to see his work to beautify us. uh, it, It will transfer our affections from ourselves It will teach us our inability to do anything to stir up holiness. And it makes us seek our beloved king to stir up our graces that he gives to us at his table to sanctify us. So with that, to set the table for the preaching, so to speak, let's consider our theme, which is to prepare for the king's table by beholding Christ's beauty and work. To prepare for the, table by, uh, for the king's table by beholding Christ's beauty and work. And we'll consider this under the four heads on your outline. The first is to see that it is Christ's work to beautify us. Second, it is to see Christ's desire for us at his table. And third, to see Christ's reassurances to us. And fourth, to see Christ's beauty as our desire. So first, Christ's work to beautify us. Well, as we return to the Song of Songs after some time, and some of you have not been here for this, I want us to remind, I want to remind us how to interpret the song, as it is often abused or neglected today. The first thing is to remember it is the Song of Songs, verse 1 1. It is a superlative that signifies this is the greatest song, and though a husband and wife are indeed found in the song, It is not primarily, we need to get that word right. It is not primarily a song concerning the love of a normal man and woman. No, as it is the song of songs, it concerns the love of loves. The greatest of all loves. And boys and girls, what's the greatest of all loves? It is Christ's love for his church, isn't it? That's what the Bible says. In Ephesians 5, speaking of marriage, Paul writes... For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning what? Christ and the church. Love in marriage points to the great mystery, which is the love of Christ for his bride, the church. And so the Song of Songs is—I'm not going to re-go re over all that ground again. The Song of Songs is an allegory for Christ's love for His church foremost, because in the Bible, Christ's relationship to the church is that of a husband to a wife. You saw that most recently as we preached through Hosea, but Ezekiel 16 and other places teach us the same. And to the imagery in the song, to the astute student of Scripture, is imagery found all throughout the Bible. And so what we do is we use all of Scripture to help us interpret it reasonably and responsibly. In a lot of ways, it's very similar to how we interpret the revelation. We interpret it from all of Scripture, don't we? We we look at it and we say, okay, this imagery is coming out of Ezekiel, or this is coming out of Daniel. And so we use what we know out of all the scriptures to interpret the revelation. We don't interpret it fantastically, but responsibly. And these two books are very similar in how they are handled. For instance, the bridegroom in our song is both the king and a shepherd. Showing us the offices of Christ in the song. And I will say, in my marriage relationship, I am not the king or the shepherd, right? These things are particular to Christ. It shows his offices in the song. And in our text, there are ornaments found on the bride. And throughout the scripture, the church is called a bride adorned for her husband, as in Revelation 21. And the house we will see that the groom and the bride dwell in are described with the very same materials that were used to construct the temple. Showing that our home with Christ is found in his church. And on the whole, it is the application of this text to ordinary marriages that can be very strained. Not, again, that you cannot take what you learn about Christ's love and apply it to marriage. But the point of Ephesians 5 is this. You begin with Christ's love for the church, and then you understand husband and wife relationships and how they are to dwell together, not the reverse. So remember, the Song of Songs deals with the love of loves, the greatest love. And this means that this book, which is neglected by so many in different seasons of life, applies to all Christians. If you are single, this book is not to be ignored by you. If you are a child, this book is not to be ignored by you. If you are divorced or you are widowed, this book is given to you as well. How much emptiness and pain are is found in those without a spouse when they read this book without seeing Christ in it. They read the book and they want to get through it quickly because this, this has nothing to do with me, they think. Because they don't see Christ's love for them in it. But even for us married folk, do not forget All of our marriages will end one day in death, in death. But the reality of the song will endure eternally at the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is an eternal book, and it has application to every believer who is wed to Christ by faith. And so with that, to set our mind on the proper use of the book, we come into our text, which has a lot of back-and-forth dialogue between Christ and his bride. It is difficult in the English translation to know who is speaking when, so when I say, this is Christ speaking to the church, or vice versa, you might be asking, Pastor, are you making that up? How do you know who is speaking? See, the thing is, beloved, it is very obvious in the Hebrew language who is speaking. The, the difficulty is actually in our English language, because Hebrew has gendered nouns and verbs. So it is easy to know who is being spoken to, and it's very plain and obvious. And I see that some translations try to signify with headings who is speaking, They try to do that to help you in that. But for your own outline that you might know for yourself based on the Hebrew, verses 9 through 11 are Christ, the bridegroom, speaking to his bride. Verses 12 to 14 are the church responding to Christ. Verse 15 is Christ speaking to the church. And verses 16 through 17 will be the church speaking to Christ. And uh, I'll draw that out as we go through the sermon. But um, what is striking, though, is this back and forth progression in the text. There's this almost adorable interchange that shows the mutual affection between Christ and the church. As though they seek to outdo one another in their adoration for one another, which culminates with the church putting in the final word in verse 16. Behold, thou art fair, my beloved, yea, pleasant." And it's right to end with the church's uh, uh, declaration of Christ's beauty because he is the epitome of beauty. And the church's beauty is derived from his own. But beloved, as we think on this interchange, the problem with our soul and something we must remedy this week is that this declaration of love, if it were found in our own life, would be unidirectional most of the time. Most of the time, it would be the Lord sending us many declarations of his love through the scriptures. So many declarations of love and so little in our own soul declaring to Christ. Oh, no, it is thou, O Lord, who is most lovely. Our interchange is mostly like Malachi 1-2. I have loved you, saith the Lord. Yet ye say, wherein hast thou loved us? So many sweet declarations of love are found in the Bible to Christ's people. And yet it is the case that so often our heart is cold to Him, not acknowledging Him, not declaring our own love and adoration because it frankly is often not there as it ought to be. Instead of us saying in return, Behold, thou art fair, my beloved, yea, pleasant, we say, Wherein hast thou loved us? What have you done for me lately? Sura goes along with Psalm 103 this morning. But the Lord wants us to respond to his declaration of love, beloved of God. What did he say is the greatest commandment after all? Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, and mind. And when we find ourselves growing cold to the Lord, that is really a matter to repent of. It is a sin. And we must see it that way. So we begin with verse 9, where Christ speaks to his beloved. He says, I have compared thee, O my love, to a company of horses in Pharaoh's chariots. First consider this and and dwell on it richly, how Christ speaks to his bride. O my love. O my love. That is what the church is to him. O my love. What did the apostle know when he wrote? That the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. The strength of calling his bride, oh, my love, then, as the apostle says in Galatians 2.20, is demonstrated in his dying for her. That really proves the truth and veracity of oh, my love. The breaking of the bread at the communion table is Christ sighing, oh, my love, I have given myself for you because I love you. And the Lord Tells us how beautiful the church is to him. She's compared to a fine company of horses fit for the Pharaoh's chariots. In verses 10 through 11, her cheeks are comely with rows of jewels, her neck with chains of gold, decked with borders of gold with studs of silver. Where does all this beauty and ornamentation come from? It comes from her husband. comes from Christ. He's not admiring our natural beauty, but he's admiring the handiwork, the work he has done to beautify us. It is very encouraging, beloved, that the Lord does not love us because we have innate beauty. This is an encouragement. It makes us rejoice to know it, friends, because the truth is we are not desirable in ourselves. And the sooner we come to grips with that, the more we will enjoy the love of God. With all of our sinfulness, we are anything but lovely. We are as Gomer when she was there, dying, half dead, when Hosea purchased her back from her lovers. The Bible says we are the walking dead at enmity with Christ, not loving him, but hating him. And because of his great love, wherewith he loved us, he beautifies us. Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 8. The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because ye were more in number than any people. For ye were the fewest of all people, but what? But because the Lord loved you. Ephesians 2 puts it like this, more plainly. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. O beloved of God, with faith in Jesus, how that must cause you to sigh with love. For it is not our performance. It is not our innate beauty that causes him to love us. No, the Ephesians 2 says we were dead in sin. Why does he love us? Deuteronomy 7 says it plainly, because he loves us. He loves us because he loves us. The most beautiful circular statement in all the world. He loves us because he loves us. Because he is pleased to love us and eternally so. And so we say then to our beloved, how sure your love is. How firm and unshakable it is. How unchangeable it is. Because it is independent of my doing and my performances. On the other hand, what do we find today? So many wives, so many women are married only for their external beauty, aren't they? And then they feel pressured. They feel pressured because they know they were only married for their external beauty, that they feel pressured to work at being beautiful externally as they grow older in fear their husband will dump them. They chase plastic surgery and other things. And in any case, they're often dumped for a younger woman in time because their husband was only after one certain thing. But Christ is not like that. He loves us even though we are ugly. But as he loves us, We are not going to stay in that condition of being ugly. He will beautify us in holiness and not leave us in our sin. And so our beauty, which is signified by the ornaments of our text, is all about the work of Jesus Christ to make us beautiful. In Ezekiel 16, the Lord speaks about how he beautified his bride. I deck thee also with ornaments and i put bracelets upon thy hands and a chain on thy neck and i put a jewel on thy forehead and earrings in thine ears and a beautiful crown upon thine head etc and in many verses there in ezekiel 16 the lord shows how he deals with his bride how he deals with his church to beautify her and in the 14th verse of that chapter he adds And thy renown went forth among the heathen for thy beauty, for it was perfect through my comeliness, which I had put upon thee, saith the Lord God. See, the beauty of the church is Christ's comeliness, his own beauty that he dresses her with. Especially with what are called the garments of righteousness in Isaiah 61 verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. Listen to this. As a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorneth herself with her jewels. All this imagery works together in the Bible, friends. The beauty of the church is that Christ's own garments of holiness have robed us that we have his alien righteousness, his alien beauty that becomes ours. And so, of course, the church is beautiful to Christ because Christ sees his own holiness that he has robed her with and has purchased at such a great cost. That's the beauty that you have, believer, on the day you, be- you believed. If you have saving interest in Christ, you are robed in the beauty of Christ's holiness. Consider how the Lord looks upon us in John's vision on the last day, Revelation twenty one two. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as what a bride adorned for her husband. It's a strange thing that men cannot see all of this imagery and apply it to the Song of Songs. Any beauty you have... Any good in you at all, it is all his ornamentation and it is all his work in you. His love then for you is the origin and source of your beauty, believer. His radiance covers you as a garment. His righteousness is your own as in First uh, Corinthians 5.21. And then covering us in holiness, he also then fills us through the means of grace to beautify us from the inside. My little children, of whom I travail in birth again, until what Christ be formed in you, Galatians four nineteen. As he works in us, we resemble him more and more. As he sanctifies us, and that is a great use of the table. I was reading this week, and Luther says it so well. He says Christ equals justification, and Christ in us equals sanctification. You see that. Christ is our justification, and Christ in us is our sanctification, our growth in holiness. And so what you must do before coming to the table is to drink deeply of your Savior's beauty in the Scriptures, and then at the table, ask Him to give you the grace to become more like Him. Uh, Beautify me, O Lord. Send forth Thy Spirit to stir up graces in me and make me beautiful. Not to be saved, of course, but that my my inner holiness would grow to be like you. But all of this is of Christ. And you must be glad because it is not up to you alone to become lovely in his eyes. He calls us lovely and he makes us lovely. This is the work of Jesus. He who sanctifies us, we've seen that in Hebrews, sees the end of his work in us when he looks on us. We rejoice over that, don't we? He doesn't just see us as sinners, but he declares the end from the beginning. He knows what his work will be in us. He knows we will be perfectly holy when we are glorified. And his work in us perfected to make us beautiful. That's how he sees us, believer. He's like the surgeon, right? Good surgeons are like this. Let's say you come in and you are crippled and in a crippled state. He doesn't just see your crippled state. He sees beyond. To what his work is going to do in you. And that is how Christ perceives us. And we must rejoice in that. Because it is going to be his operation that will make us beautiful. And that also assures us of our warrant to be at Christ's table. If we come in faith. Because we know that it is his work that we desire. To grow us in holiness. And cause us to walk in the beauty of holiness. Well. So. With that then, I've gone a bit long in this heading, so we'll move to Christ's desire for us at his table. He wants us to come. Verse 12, while the king sitteth at his table, my spikenard sendeth forth the smell thereof. Here is Jesus Christ, the king, the king, in all his kingly regalia sitting at his table. The king of kings, the lord of lords, not just any king, the king. And the table signifies his feast, right? That's what a table is, and that's why we actually celebrate the supper at a table. The table in the Bible signifies the gospel feast. Isaiah 25, 6 says, And in this mountain shall the Lord of hosts make unto all people a feast of fat things, a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of wines on the lees well refined. You know it's the gospel feast. As a couple of verses later, Isaiah 25, 8 connects this feast to He will swallow up death in victory and the Lord God will wipe away tears from off of all faces and the rebuke of his people shall he take away from off all the earth. Of course, you heard that in the New Testament, didn't you? This is the gospel feast that he sets at the table. And the table in the Bible signifies where the gospel ordinances are set. The word, prayer and the sacraments, all of them, but especially the Lord's Supper for it is called the Lord's table in 1 Corinthians 10.21 and so the supper is a place of deep intimate fellowship with Christ the King just as it was in the upper room with his first disciples that we may lay our head on Christ's bosom in love and nearness to our Savior what a thing I often reflect on this and you've heard me say this many times what a thing sinful man can be so close to the God of heaven through Jesus Christ it's astonishing it really is uh, to be invited to the king of glory's table and that he wants us there and that he wants us there he embraces all who comes to sup with him who have that wedding garment we heard of on them and when the king come, came in to see the guests he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment and he saith unto him friend how camest thou in hither not having a wedding garment Matthew 22 11 through 12 but the reverse is true isn't it that if you have the wedding garment, you are welcome, and he wants you there. The only one of you who who is not welcome to the Lord's table then is one who does not have the garments of righteousness. Come, though, if you are decked with the garments of righteousness, which are yours by faith in Jesus. What you must do is you must come bringing your faith in Christ as a repentant sinner, and the king will receive you there if you are wearing his robes of righteousness. what a wonderful thing that is if you knew his beauty. This is the king of glory. My liege, my beloved, draws me next to him in his kingly table in love. That's a place for no one but those he has set his love on, which are the elect of God. Believer, he ennobles, he ennobles the least of you. He ennobles the least of all believers. He ennobles the greatest of all sinners who believe on him. To have a place at his table, the king's table, to be invited to the king's court, a place reserved for nobility. He invites in Luke 14 who? The poor, the halt, the lame, the blind, to take their place at the supper. No wonder, no wonder Christ and his disciples, and we need to get in the habit of doing this more in our communion services. No wonder they sang Psalm 113 at that first Lord's Supper. Who is like unto the Lord our God who dwelleth on high, who humbleth himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth? He raiseth up the poor out of the dust, and lifteth the needy out of the dunghill, that what? He might set him with princes, even with the princes of his people. Even as you face down your three great enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, what does Psalm 23 say? Four through five say, Yea, they walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. We come to the king's table as if it were to find oasis and shelter and refuge in the midst of this world that rages against our soul. And the king meets us there, and he blesses us there, and gives us his strength. And as you think on the 23rd Psalm saying, thou anointest my head with oil, you have to remember what this is an allusion to, and it's an allusion here in our song song as well. The feasts of old, boys and girls, you might not recognize this, because our feasts today are rather shallow affairs. One day at the marriage supper of the Lamb, you will see a feast. But in the old days, a feast was not just known by the amount of food and drink but it was also a sensory experience the perfume that would be set out spikenard that is very costly and expensive would be set out so that there would be a true experience this is why in Luke 14 that the master of the house is very wroth with those who don't come to the feast because much preparation was made a costly feast was set and nobody came But you had this wonderful aroma, the meats and the drink, and then the spikenard that would be said. And it was quite the experience. And here, the bride recognizes at Christ's table, his presence stirs up her graces, which are signified as this well-pleasing aroma. She says with the king at his table, my spikenard sendeth forth the smell thereof. Spikenard is a very costly spice. It's a fragrant um, thing that is made into a perfume or an ointment you think of mary in john twelve three. then mary uh, took a pound of ointment of spikenard very costly and anointed the feet of jesus and wiped his feet with her hair and the house was filled with the odor of the ointment um, maybe today you might think of essential oils or something as you think on something like spikenard but they're all very very pale imitations. but our graces are often spoken this way in the bible aren't they Revelation 5 And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors. That's that uh, melodious perfume, which are the prayers of saints. The gospel of Christ, his presence in us is spoken that way too. 2 Corinthians 2, for we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ in them that are saved and in them that perish. To the one we are the savor of death unto death. And to the other, the savor of life unto life. And to be with the king at the table, at his table, what it does is it activates and excites the believer's graces. His presence, it is his presence at the table that my spikenard sendeth forth the smell thereof. A pleasing aroma to Christ, yes, but it is his presence, beloved, that grows your graces when you think on the table that is set before us, not just the Lord's table, but all the gospel ordinances, it is not just Bible reading, but it is Bible reading with Christ present in it that activates your graces. It is not just prayers shot up meaninglessly into nothingness, but prayers where you bring Christ into them. It is not just a memorial table next week. It is a table by faith that we see Christ seated at, and it is that kind of faith the king uses to grow his, our graces. And in verses 13 through 14, we have the bride's response to her beloved. A bundle of myrrh is my well-beloved unto me. He shall lie all night betwixt my breasts. My beloved is unto me as a cluster of campfire in the vineyards of En Gidai. If her spikenard, this is where this interchange is so beautiful here. If her spikenard flows forth, then he is like a, a bundle of myrrh to her, sweet to the smell. Again, there is this melodious interchange between the two beloveds. Myrrh is also a costly spice. And what was it used to make in the Old Testament? The anointing oil for the high priest, Exodus 30.22. And then in Matthew 2.11, the wise man brought myrrh to Christ when he was a child. Our king is the anointed one. That's who he is. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. And myrrh must remind the bride of Christ of that. In Psalm 45, the bride, as we'll sing this, the bride says to Messiah as God. That's what Psalm 45 is. The Messiah, the bridegroom as God. She says, all thy garments smell of myrrh. She knows then that her beloved is sent by the father in love to redeem her from what she had said earlier. I am black and that it is the sun that has looked upon me that makes me so dark in your sight. And yet, because I have the anointed one, the Christ, I am lovely. I am comely. But also it is the case that myrrh is bitter to the taste as the bitter herbs of the Passover. And it is bittersweet to us to remember how myrrh is connected to Christ in that. At Christ's burial, Nicodemus brought a costly amount of myrrh to perfume his body, John 19.39. And so myrrh makes us see the love of the Lord shown in his broken body and shed blood at the table. For though the Lord, this is the thing about the Lord, right? Is he has not just given us sweet, pleasant words to show us his love that way. He has demonstrated his love for the bride as well. What is the great demonstration? That while we were yet sinners, while we were yet dark, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8. And the Lord's love shown in his death will always remain deeply impressed upon us for eternity. For what is the marriage supper called? It is called the marriage supper of the Lamb. It is called the marriage supper of the Lamb. We will ever remember Him as the Lamb of God, slain for our sins out of love. And as you prepare for the table this week, behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world, even mine. Behold Him, slain out of love for sinners like you. And may the aroma of Christ's death in your soul fill you with bittersweet longing. A hatred for your sin that necessitated the death of the Son of God. But also a profound love for the God of heaven who has taken on a human nature to die in your place for his beloved. She also says Christ is like a cluster of campfire in the vineyards of uh, N-Jedi. and Jedi was an oasis or refuge in the wilderness. David dwelt in its strongholds when Saul pursued him, 1 Samuel twenty three twenty seven, And so it is his presence at the table that is as refreshment, as an oasis in the wilderness of a sin-soaked world, a world that is so full of the heat of the noonday sun, this life of the curse and sin, To be with Christ is to find an oasis and a refuge from it all. That is why she desires that he would lie all night betwixt her breasts. Her desire is that Christ would lay upon her heart. Your heart, beloved, is meant to be Christ's residence. And you must make it so both day and night. Last time at the table, I was so encouraged to hear this. Many of you said you had a heightened sense of Christ's presence and love. Many of us did not want to leave, and Christ did a great work at drawing us there. There was a special time at the table for many. And we wanted to sit and inquire with him, not wanting our time at the table to come to an end, though we know it must end for a short while. But believer, what I will say is take your sense of that Home with you when you go. Christ is not just present at his table. He is present to you in your heart by faith. Day and night resolved to be with Jesus. Mary Magdalene, when she met the risen Christ, the Bible says, and it's more profound in the Greek, clung to him. Clung to him. John 20:17 and she reminds us of the of two chapters from now in the song but i found him whom my soul loveth i held him and would not let him go that's what clinging to christ is all about it is to spend time with the lord in love in the word in prayer and in other exercises of the soul where we walk with him so I'll ask, how are you clinging to Christ, beloved? How are you enjoying his presence? How do you delight to have his residence in your heart? One of the things that I have grown in over the years is simply in my desire for Jesus. Just him. Just him. Just him in my study or wherever. Pouring my soul out to him. Asking for him to fill my soul with fat things as in Psalm 103. Telling him my troubles. My troubles expressing my joys, glorifying him for what he has done in my life, to say to him as I open my Bible, speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. By faith, you must learn to communicate with him in such ways. Your Bible, when it it comes alive to you by the Spirit of the Lord, it is not just a collection of random verses. It is the voice of our beloved, and we must treat it that way. And when your piety grows in that way, as you grow near to the Lord, good works then. Walking with the Lord becomes our joy, for we see that this is the work of Christ in us. Uh, Sabbaths are a delight. We long for days where we may fast or or give thanksgiving to God, not just the regular Sabbath day worships. And we learn that to spend time with the Lord resting on our heart is a far better thing than Netflix and Facebook. And we say, what are the things of this world next to a single, well-spent minute with the Lord Jesus? And how good an entire night is with him. If you see his loveliness in the scripture, you must long to spend time with him. Are you spending time with the Lord? Are you spending time with the Lord? Are you saying to him, you know, I remember... You know, you remember courting uh, your wife, or maybe on the other hand, your husband, and there is just, you did not want a minute to go by without them. And that's what the believer's interchange is like with Christ, or it should be. I don't want to spend a minute away from you, O Lord. So, because we are not what we ought to be, let's next look at Christ's reassurances to us. Verse 15 says, Behold, thou art fair, my love. Behold, thou art fair. Thou hast dove's eyes. Earlier in verse 5, she said, I am black that is dark, but comely. You remember her sins, the heat of the world? She recognized made her darkened in God's eyes. And that's what sin has done to us. It has burned us up. It has made us haggard like Gomer. But again, it is Christ that makes us comely. So here Christ tells her not once, but twice, behold, thou art fair, my love. Behold, thou art fair. Twice, behold. Behold, behold. You won't pay attention once, so pay attentions twice. Pay attention, my love. Let me reassure you, my beloved, thou art fair. Even with all your sinfulness, yes, you are lovely to me. We need this assurance, beloved. We must take note of it and behold his words. Yes, truly, Jesus desires to make a place for us where we may dwell with him forever. Yes, he sees us as fair in his eyes only because we are the objects of his affection and love. If you have saving faith, a faith expressed in repentance and adoration for Christ, you must know certainly that you are beloved of him. You are not to doubt it. You with the smallest faith are beloved by the Savior. He sees you as lovely for his work in you. And if you would see that, I believe your faith would grow and your praise of the Lord would be magnified. Your love of sin would diminish and your trust in the promises of God that are yea and amen in Christ would increase. And he says to her, though she often plays the harlot as we do. Her eyes are like doves' eyes. Boys and girls, maybe you know this, but doves are birds. They're a rare bird in this way that they mate for life. They're faithful to one another. And so fittingly, if the church has doves' eyes here, in Song of Songs 512, the church says Christ is the one with doves' eyes. His eyes are as the eyes of doves by the rivers of waters. Christ and the church are like this perfect pair of doves forever to be intertwined one to another. He has eyes for no one else, and we are to have eyes for no other but Christ. Anything else is spiritual whoredom and to be repented of. Our idolatry and our sin always diminish, diminish our eyes for Christ, don't they? That's what idolatry and sin is. But we are called to have dove's eyes. Would the Lord look upon us and say we have dove's eyes? We have only eyes for him. Ask the Lord, open the eyes of my understanding to be enlightened by the Spirit, that my eyes would behold Christ in all things, that your soul would ever look upon Christ, see his glory, his majesty, his grace, his love, his sovereignty, his sufficiency for your every need, that every motion you make in this world would have your eyes still fixed upon Christ. That when the temptation comes, you don't see the sin, you see Christ. And you see the way of escape, and you even laugh at the temptation in a way, because what is this compared to the glory of Christ? That's what we must have. That's what, you know, when uh, there is, and I pray that by God's help, this will always be the case. There is no woman who is going to take my affection away from my wife. That when I see any woman, what I see is my love, my beloved wife. And that's what it must be for the church. That when temptation comes, you would see Christ take his way of escape. That in difficulty and trial, you would see Christ in it and you would take heart because he has assured his bride, take heart, be of good cheer, I have overcome the world for you. Is that where it, you are when it comes to Christ? Where does it begin? It begins by beholding his beauty, doesn't it? And taking, uh, being taken captive by it as lovers are. Psalm 27.4, think of this. One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Why? To behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire at his temple. That is... That is the psalmist with dove's eyes for Christ. It is the one one thing he desires is to behold the beauty of the Lord. And if you have been in love, even with a a normal man or woman, you know there are days when your mind is consumed with your spouse. You see them in everything. And that is what it's like to have dove's eyes. Will you do that this week as you prepare? Will you have eyes for the Lord? You must meditate on him constantly. When you go to work, say, behold, I will labor now as unto my beloved. When you wake, say, behold, I laid me down and slept. I awaked. Why? For my beloved sustained me through the night. When you eat or drink, say, behold, as I eat or drink, I do it to the glory of my beloved, who out of his love gave me this provision. When you are tempted and in your time of need, you say, behold, my beloved has a throne of grace for me in my time of need. You can see your beloved in everything. And if you sin and need repentance, you say, I will now go to my beloved for mercy in my time of need. And he assures me, he assures me, thou, uh, behold, thou art fair, my love, for my blood, my own blood has covered your sin." And how fitly you will be prepared to meet your beloved at the table if he has been your constant desire in these ways this week. And so this takes us to our final heading, and this will be somewhat brief Christ's beauty as her desire. In verses 16 through 17, behold, thou art fair, my beloved, yea, pleasant. Also, our bed is green. The beams of our house are cedar, and our rafters of fir. Now it is the bride's turn to respond to Jesus, saying, Behold, thou art fair, my beloved, yea, pleasant. In a sense, she gets the final word, which is fitting because, again, his beauty outshines hers, and her beauty is just derivative of him. So she says, no, be- no, beloved, you are the most beautiful. You are most beautiful, my beloved, yea, pleasant to me. As if there's, you know, this almost like this affectionate back and forth, who is going to get the last word? And she gets it in. And she says, no, none can compare to you. There is nothing that can compare to you. My beauty is just derivative of yours. And she says, you are most pleasant to me. The word pleasant means delightful, sweet, lovely, even melodious. She is enraptured with the king and cannot wait to be with him in their abode. In this house of theirs whose beams are cedars and rafters are fir. Due to time, I'll just reiterate, these are the materials used to build the temple. You can see that yourself in 1 Kings 5.8 as Solomon interacts with Tyre, showing that his song of songs then is preparatory for David's greater son, isn't it? And so it is the church, the temple of God, 1 Corinthians 3.16-17, through 17, where Christ and his bride dwell together. That's why we go back to our membership sermon from last Lord's Day. This is another reason where Christians are drawn into the church. Because it is in the church that she makes her home with Christ. It is in the church where she sees her beloved. And it is there that the bride comes to behold the beauty of the Lord. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. And that is why the worship service is meant to have you behold the beauty of the Lord. And that is why the preaching of the word is meant to have you behold Christ in all his beauty. So that you might have an intercourse with him in your soul as you gaze upon him. It is not, as I said this morning, just learning the scripture we are here for, but to truly behold Christ in the scripture. Search the scripture, he said, For in them you think you have eternal life, but these are they that testify of me. It is not just taking the sacrament then next week as a ritual we are here for, but it is to behold Christ in the supper. So again, beloved, as you prepare this week, make it your priority to behold the beauty of Christ. Do you even know how to do it? Do you even know where to go? Pant for him. Say, O my soul, behold the beauty of my beloved in Scripture. And maybe as you pray, when was the last time you prayed? Behold, thou art fair, my beloved. Thou art fairer than the children of men. Grace is poured into thy lips. These are the words of Scripture for you not just to sing, but to pray and to say to the Lord. Next week. We will behold our beloved by hearing the next sermon on beholding something. We will, from John 19, behold the man. Behold the man bloodied and bruised for his bride. Behold the man who is altogether lovely, so defaced, so marred that no one can recognize him. This is the love of Jesus Christ. So perhaps... As you prepare for the supper, prepare this week in seeing his loveliness in going to the cross. Not just to mourn him, but to see it as the great demonstration of his love for you, as in Romans 5.8. And as you behold his love, ask him to banish in your heart your love for sin and the world. And come panting for Christ at the table. And he will meet you there. The king will. Believe it by faith. And behold his beauty. Amen. May God help you do it. Let's please please rise for prayer, if able. Our Father and our God, what a radiant Savior you've given us. Truly the fairest of the children of men. Truly how glorious he is that not only is he a man, but the fullness of the Godhead resides in him bodily, such that he is so glorious and so wondrous that none can compare to him. Help us grow in love to our Savior. And Lord, we know that it is fitting if he didn't love us, but how unfitting it is for us not to love him. He loves us so deeply, though we deserve none of his love And yet we, the sinner who deserves nothing but wrath, find our hearts so cold to our Savior. Would you reverse this, Father? Would you take away our coldness and deadness to Christ? May we look upon him as our fair beloved who has come to save us from our sinfulness, even giving his life for us, that we might say with the apostle that the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. And may that cause us to return his love back to him, that we would, in a sense, get the final word saying, Behold my love, thou art fair, as we turn to Jesus this week. Help us do this as we prepare to meet him in the supper. We ask for his sake. Amen.